Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Bruce Lewinstein, a professor of science communication at Cornell University. He's a widely known authority on public communication of science and technology. He has done extensive work on how science and technology are reported to the public and how the public understands complex and sometimes contested scientific issues. Bruce, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. From the museums of 15th century to the public lectures of Michael Faraday in 19th century to various science fairs and festivals of 21st century, public engagement of science has evolved immensely. Uh, you say in your publications that public engagement of science is a multidimensional and multidirectional activity. Help us to unpack and understand the concept of uh, public engagement of science. I think one of the big challenges is that many people think of science communication as one thing, or public engagement as one thing. But in fact, it's many things. So it is uh, people who are curious about the world and want to learn more about it. It is people who have a mission to make other people think the way they do. It is people who have a particular problem in the world that they want to see solved. Um, it is people today on a rainy weekend afternoon looking for some place to go that doesn't involve shopping, and so they go to the science museum. Uh, it, it's news that is mixed in with economic news and political news and sports news uh, and, and the comic strip season. Uh, it is all of those things. Uh, let us uh, stay with this point a bit longer that uh, public engagement of science is a multidimensional and multidirectional activity. Uh, what are various dimensions and what are various uh, directions of public engagement of science? Yeah, so the, the reason I call science communication multidirectional is that there's an ideal out there that says, well, scientists do things in the laboratory or out in the field, and maybe they talk about it with their colleagues or give a, a presentation at a meeting, and, and then they publish it in a journal. And, and when they publish that article in a the journal, then it's science, right? That that's the moment when suddenly it becomes science, and then it goes out to the mass media or to policy documents and so uh, uh, museums or whatever. But it turns out that that's actually not the way it works. For each time you present science, whether you're presenting it to your, whether you're a researcher presenting it to the colleagues in your lab or presenting it to your students or presenting it at a conference or presenting it to a reporter or participating in a documentary, each one of those is a different representation of the knowledge that you created. In addition to which, that's, so that's the sort of, it's different all the way, but also it goes in the other direction, meaning that scientists don't just get their information from, uh, from other scientists. They get it from publics. They, a reporter asks them a question that they don't know the answer to. They have to go back and, and figure it out. 
or they're presenting some of their, maybe it's a biologist and they're presenting some work at a, at a nature center. And in the process, they discovered, because of some of the questions that people are asking, that there's a particular relationship in the ecology of that pond, let's say, that they don't understand. And so that public interaction has led, leads back to different research possibilities. Um, one of the famous examples that I, that I sometimes use is that, uh, the idea that, uh, there was a, uh, a meteor crash that led to the death of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Well, that idea came because a physicist noticed that there was a particular layer of, um, uh, I forget what, I don't even remember now what, what it was, a particular layer of soil um, that seemed to be consistent at that age. And he hypothesized this uh, this crater and so on. And he discussed it with other physicists, not with geologists, not with paleontologists. And he started ultimately presenting his work at physics meetings. A reporter for a kind of a specialist science news outlet wrote it up. It appeared in that medium, not in a scientific journal, but in this popular, in this semi-popular journal. And that was how the paleontologists learned that there was this whole new idea and that they had to then become engaged in that conversation, which they didn't always agree with and so on. But it was, they got it in this sort of roundabout way. There are examples of researchers who, uh, who read about, they're reading Scientific American and they see something in a completely different field than their own, but it gives them an idea. And so they should. So there's information that flows that way. Another multi-dimensional way, this was, comes from the work of one of my students, Stephen Allison. Um, in the early 1960s, the Smithsonian Museum in the United States was going to build a new exhibit about the rainforest. But they didn't really know, they had some rainforest information, but not as much as they wanted and not enough to really build an exhibit especially an exhibit that was, in the initial conception, supposed to represent a single place. And so they went out on an expedition to a place called Kayatur Falls in British Guiana in Latin America and collected new specimens and brought them back to the museum. And so the process of building an exhibit led to the creation of new knowledge about the rainforest in this particular part of Latin America. So this is why I say there's multi-directional. You, you, it, it's not that the scientists do things and then it goes out to the public. It's that the public asks things and that goes back to the scientists. One, one more example. Um, uh, you know, many scientists now are encouraged to go talk to their Congress, their political representatives, their parliamentarian or in the United States, the congressman. And there's a story that one of my colleagues tells about she had a researcher and he went to talk to his congressman. And the congressman said, well, what, what do you work on? Well, I work on uh, soy. And the congressman said, oh, that's too bad. I only, in my district, all we grow is wheat. Thanks for coming by. Goodbye. Um, 
the point being for a politician, if you don't work on something that's meaningful for them, you're of no use. What the scientist realized was he could ask the exact same scientific questions about genetics and about some, some biochemistry and so forth. He could ask those questions in wheat as well as soy. It was just a matter of, of habit that he had learned to work in soy where, wherever he got his training. So he actually switched his research program to wheat in order to be able, he could still ask the scientific questions that he was interested in, but now he was serving the needs of his local uh, district, um, and and he had a better connection with his representative. Um, so again, there's this interaction that happens that we always have to be aware of. Let us uh, look at the history of public engagement of science. Uh, can we identify a point in time in history when we say that the public engagement of science emerged uh, as a useful activity? Well, I'm not sure what we mean by useful, so that's a, that's a, tricky, that's a tricky statement. But what we do know is that at the early part of the 19th century, roughly 225 years ago, was just as the time as science was beginning to move from natural philosophy to the in, to the different sciences of biology and chemistry and physics, they're just beginning to actually pick up those names. And so you begin to get the specialization that leads to scientists needing to explain things to other scientists in ways that they can't discuss you also are just beginning to get the growth of a leading public. I'm now speaking mostly here in Europe and the United States. Um, the histories are different in other parts of the world. And one of the things that we actually don't know enough about those other parts of the world that, that we need to learn a lot more about. For example, there's a long history going back earlier in India of astronomical knowledge and so forth. Um, but so you begin to have these reading publics that you need to know more. And so people begin to start thinking about writing for them. So there's a, there's a, it's called Newton. I don't know if the book was called Newton in the Nursery or if that's what my colleague called it when he wrote about it. Um, but in the early um, 19th century, there people began to write a book about Isaac Newton. So this is a hundred hundred years after he died. Um, that, uh, that were intended for children. There was a very famous series of books called Mrs. Marseille's Conversations About Chemistry, also first published in the early years of the 19th century, where these were written for young women, um, who were of the upper classes and whose parents felt that they should be educated. But of course, they weren't going to be educated for industry or for deep philosophical exploration. Some of them, you know, it's not that they couldn't, it's that the ideals of the time. And so these books were written to introduce young women to the idea, to some of the ideas of chemistry. Um, and that series of books continued for generations. Um, around the same time, so again, 200 and some odd years ago, we have there's a shift in museums. Museums had been essentially collections of curiosities. That's sometimes what they were called, actually, cabinets of curiosities. 
And around this time, people began to specialize. Where there was an art museum and a history museum and a natural history museum. Uh, and so people would begin to specialize. And some of these museums, there's a case here in the United States called Peel's Museum, where you had to figure out how to organize it. It's not just a random collection, but organize it. Have some story that it would tell. And he actually used the Linnaean system as a tool for organizing his natural history collection. This is all emerging in the early part of the 19th century. Uh, that's also about the time that the word scientist first appeared. Many people now know the first person called a scientist was actually a woman, um, uh, an astronomer. Uh, and uh, the science has become more specialized. And so there becomes and, the, and we have the growth of industrialized education uh, in the middle of the 19th century with the growth of rapid, you know, the Industrial Revolution. So there's more educational opportunities, there's more need to reach out to people. There's changes in how information is distributed. We have the development of what's called the penny press. Uh, rotary presses make, make it much easier to produce uh, newspapers and books at a much lower cost. And so suddenly you could produce books that could be read by the lower classes, by the, by the people who are not as economically wealthy. Um, and so that created a space for more material and so on. So the, all the, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, you get leisure time. And so you get times for people to be able to explore. All these things are interacting and, and happen in the early part of the early to mid 19th uh, century. In early publications of uh, public engagement of science, there was a tension between providing information and creating a spectacle. Talk to us about the early publications of science communication where writers and editors struggled to achieve a balance between providing useful information and uh, creating a spectacle. So one of the places where we saw this the best was, again, in the early 19th century in the United States. Uh, we had a, you know, here in the United States, we are a very large physically, physical country. Most of the population at that time was right along the eastern seaboard. Uh, and so in order to have, and so people beyond that didn't have access to schooling and to museums and to other things. We would have a series of what were called itinerant lectures. People who would pack up and go from town to town um, uh, providing information and so on. So they, every time they came to a new town, they had to attract an audience. So they would do exciting things. They would have things that exploded. They would have things that, you know, made big noises or fancy colors or um, created a spectacle because that's how you drew people in. At the same time, some of these itinerant lecturers were well educated, uh, understood science, and so the stories they would tell and the things they would convey would be about what we know about electricity. You know, so here, electricity is a, a thing you can easily do exciting things with, but at the same time, you can be teaching about electricity. Uh, and so there was this kind of mix. When the great natural history museums were being developed, um, many of the 
biggest, most famous ones emerged across the 19th century. Um, they were partly collections of research materials, so they were intended for the scientists, and insofar as they were organized, they were organized to tell a, a very careful scientific story. They were also, importantly, often tools of imperialism. Um, they often collected from the colonies and were a way of, of managing them, the knowledge that was being extracted from the colonies. So there's a, there's a dark side to this story as well. Um, so, at the one, so on the one hand, they're research collections. They're about information. But on the other hand, they begin to open up at least to some parts of the public wealthy elites and so forth, um, and again, to appeal to them something more spectacular. Let's, let's show the big exciting plants, not all the microbes. Um, let's have a, a statue of, um, of a large animal, a skeleton of a large animal. Like, we don't even yet quite call them dinosaurs at that point, um, uh, but put, put a big statue there or something, something dramatic in the entrance. Uh, so again, there's this tension between the institution exists for research and knowledge, and yet at the same time, part of how we tell stories is by having drama and excitement. Do you think that uh, some of these traveling science communicators were trained enough or had enough experience that perhaps we can say that uh, they were the earliest professional science communicators? Well, I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, first off, I'm sure they didn't call themselves science communicators. Um, but in fact, you know, many of them were not well trained. They were smart people. But in those days, not many people went to higher education. So they might be people who maybe they had apprenticed for a, uh, for a doctor or they had been a school teacher from the time they were 18 until they were 25 or something like that. Um, so they were, they were knowledgeable, but they weren't trained. They weren't, these were people who, you know, or maybe they apprenticed with a carnival person who taught them how to, how to speak and so on. Um, but they were out, it was a very, it was a very, you know, they were partly about education, they were partly about spectacle, they were partly about making a living. And this is one of the things we always have to remember. People are in this in part because they have to do something to earn a living. Um, and that they, you know, they found a particular way. It is, I, to be honest, I don't know whether there was anything similar to this in Europe or elsewhere in the world. It is a particular cultural piece of the United States that this idea of self-improvement and of individuals acquiring knowledge and seeking out education um, as part of our cultural identity as Americans. This is part of it, it emerges in this era as well. So there's a there's a peculiarly American point to that. In the early days of science, uh, science was seen as a positive thing. Uh, science was seen as an activity for progress and prosperity, and uh, it was idealized. So, in the early days of science, there was an interest in science from this perspective that uh, it was an activity uh, that would lead to progress and prosperity. 
So that's certainly a part of the history of science communication. I think that actually emerges a little bit later um, because some of the great science communicators who we, we actually refer to them as the great men of science um, emerge in the second part of the 19th century, especially in, in England, uh, especially after Darwin's uh, original publication uh, uh, on the origin of, of man. Because the uh, because there became a need to proselytize for science, to really to say we have to take this scientific approach to, to understanding the world. Because at the time, still, religious understandings were, were still very strong. I mean, they are strong today, but at the time, you know, they were much more institutionalized and formal. So there was this need to proselytize. So there were certainly some people who believed science was a form of progress, but there were others who were who were worried. It's by the turn of the 20th century that we get this really strong idea that science is a form of progress. Uh, this is how we're going to make the world a better place. Essentially, it wins the war, uh, if there ever was a war, with, with religion. Um, and uh, they and so the idea of progress motivates a lot of science communication around the turn of the 20th century and into the 20th century in part because science can by then begin to really demonstrate some concrete achievements that are that show us that we have a better world so we have the growth of clean water through public health systems we have the growth of treatments for tuberculosis and diphtheria and, and other uh, infectious diseases. Uh, we have the development of chemical, of the chemical industries and chemical dyes and chemical uh, tools. We have the growth of, of electricity as a, uh, as a form of industrialization uh, and has contributed to it. And so now it is, there's now a really clear sense that these things that seem to depend on science, Turns out they also depend on practical technology, but that's a different story. Um, but that they, that certainly scientists lay claim to, uh, that that's what shows us that we are in a better world. Uh, and so that's where the idea of progress comes to the point that by the 1930s, or 19, it starts even in the 20s, there begin to be concerns about science and progress are outpacing the ability of the world to, to keep up. Uh, and this happens during the Depression, and then when the Great Depression hits the world in the 1930s, uh, there are actually concerns, in the, at least among the intellectual elites, I don't know how widespread they were, that, that we should take a pause on science. There was a call for a science holiday, uh, that we should, we should stop science for a little while to let the rest of the world catch up. Uh, and that's, um, so it, it, it's by then that we begin to see the, the concerns about, you know, science, science had been a sign of progress and it certainly continues to be, but also we begin to get concerns about, well, what exactly is science doing to our society? It's around this time, 1915 through 1940, roughly that the field of science journalism emerges as a separate sub-discipline within journalism. You, you begin to get people who 
um, who call themselves science journalists, and they are often the first people at their uh, at their publication to do so. This nicely brings us to my next uh, question. In your presentations, you discuss few books that were published in the mid-20th century and you say that these books played an important role in improving public engagement of science. Talk to us about these books and the impact uh, of these books on public engagement of science. And I'm keen to focus on this book, The Ascent of Man by Professor Jacob Bernowski. The book and the documentary had a huge impact on how people viewed science and research and uh, exploration of uh, our natural world around us. So, you know, there have been books by scientists for the public for, again, 200 years. Um, but part of what happens in the second, from the mid 20th century on, is that you get, start getting a, a big growth in these to the point that increasingly they appear on bestseller lists and some of their authors become well-known, become celebrities in their own right for their book writing and so forth. And it turns out that this is also, I don't want to say it's tied to, it's parallel with uh, the, the growth of other media, the growth of radio and then, then the growth after the World War II of television, and today the growth of the web, uh, so that you, be, uh, oh, and also the growth of movies. Um, so you begin to have some interactions between the media that lead to some of these people, some of these authors, and some of these books becoming very well known. There's three examples I'd like to use. Um, Jacques Cousteau, one of the people who invented scuba diving and invented one of the forms of the aqua lung. Uh, he was a filmmaker. Uh, you know, he, he, he initially, he was, he, he was not making movies and so forth. And, um, he created a, a movie called Silent World. Uh, Louise Moll was one of the, uh, directors and, and producers. Uh, and he did a book that was, the book version of the movie that came out roughly the same, within a year or two of each other. Um, and this, although Cousteau had already been a little bit famous, he'd already appeared in, in the National Geographic and so on, this is what put him on the map. And suddenly Jacques Cousteau is the celebrity. Right? Remember, Jacques Cousteau is not, an, he's not actually a scientist, he's not actually an engineer, he's actually a, a pilot who, because of an injury, couldn't fly anymore. And that's what let him under the ocean. Um, and, and so he becomes a celebrity. And, and you know, for the, for the rest of his life, we see Jacques Cousteau documentaries and the Cousteau Society and, and so on. In the 1950s, the BBC in, the, in Great Britain produced a film, called, a series uh, called Civilization, uh, hosted by uh, a great art art historian Kenneth Clark. A lot of scientists complained when that BBC series came out because there was not a lick of science there. There was nothing. It was all about art and royalty and, and um, uh, geography, maybe some, but really it was art. It was art and politics. There was no science. And 
scientists complained, and essentially the BBC said, okay, show us. So they produced, so the BBC then produced a series called The Ascent of Man. And the host was Jacob Bernowski. Bernowski was a refugee from Central Europe who was a statistician, mathematician, but who'd increasingly become just an intellectual uh, explorer uh, and, and, and intellectual in that sense. He's someone who just explored all kinds of things. And so he produced the series Ascent of Men uh, on the BBC, which then ran in the United States a couple of years later. Uh, and there was a book version of Ascent of Man, which was essentially the script of the, of the series, um, that sold very well as a bestseller. And so again, you have Bernowski as a, as a celebrity and so forth. It tremendously stressed him. His, actually, his widow believes that it was the stress of producing the series killed him, um, and blamed the producer for, for doing that. Uh, it came to the United States. So it came to the United States in, I think, 1974. And that led to the public broadcasting system in the United States wanting to produce a more homegrown version, and also a version that covered not just science on Earth, but science uh, out in the universe. And at the time, the astronomer Carl Sagan was just becoming well-known, he had actually published uh, a book that won a Pulitzer Prize, so one of our top literary prizes. And so they engaged Sagan to produce what became the series Cosmos. And uh, Sagan, the, produ the producer, Adrian Malone, who worked with, it was the same producer, by the way, who worked on Ascent of Man. So there's a connection there. Um, uh, worked with Sagan. Sagan insisted that the book version would actually be different. It, it, it's, it's connected where the chapters not line up with the, the individual shows, but the, the wording is different and the details are different. Sagan had this personality that was, that worked very well on television. And in the fall of 1980, when this series ran on American television, there was a writer's strike. And so there were no other original television shows, a very few other original television shows that fall. Which meant that people who were looking for that they had something they hadn't seen before went to see the Sagan show. And, you know, a little trivia about American television. Unlike many countries, our public television system is actually a very small part of our overall broadcast system. Most of our, most of our system, broadcast system is private. Uh, and so it was always, it, the public broadcasting system had emerged out of the educational broadcasting network. So these things sort of, you know, come together. Um, so this brought people to public TV, made it wonderful. The book was very well, many people think actually the book is better than the series, than the TV series. The book was on the bestseller list for years, a couple of years. The show, I, you know, I've given up. You know, they say it's been seen by half a billion or a billion people. You know, it's been reproduced in new versions by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, it just, you know, it created Sagan as a star. 
Sagan, there was a lot of jealousy in the scientific community, right? Then it would be to the point that there is something called the Sagan effect, which is the, if you're a scientist, you shouldn't popularize because um, you're going to be blackballed in the way that Sagan was. Sagan was denied membership to the National Academy of Sciences, uh, probably because of his popularization. What many people don't recognize is that Sagan was actually a superb astronomer. He was involved in every one of the major missions as they extended out from space. He was uh, the American Astrophysical Astronomical Society uh, gave him an award explicitly for his science. They were they were quite explicit. This is not about his popularization. This is about his science. He was one of the leading planetary scientists. Many of the other leading scientists younger than him went through his lab at one point, his postdocs. Um, but nonetheless, he gets remembered as being this. He did have a very big ego <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, was difficult to deal with. But he was also, once you reach celebrity at that stage, it's actually very difficult to have a normal life. Um, he... Um, unfortunately, his first couple of marriages went through you know, divorce, and one of his children, who was living with her, with, with the mother, you know, Sagan would go and would want to have a you know, visit with his son, and they couldn't do things like go out to the park or go to a restaurant because they would be mobbed by people trying to see Sagan the celebrity, and Sagan didn't want that. He wanted to, the attention to be on his son. That was the whole point of of, you know, going to do this. So it was a very difficult life, uh, in some ways, and, and an interesting challenge. Would you agree that uh, the ascent of man and cosmos uh, played an important role in creating this phenomenon of uh, celebrity scientists? Yes, I think, I, I think that they do. I think those two books, uh, Bernowski's Ascent of Man and Sagan's Cosmos, uh, were were some of the first of these blockbuster books that sold millions of copies up until about 1980. And, and I only have numbers for the United States. I don't, I don't know the rest of the world. Um, a best-selling science book might sell several hundred thousand copies. I think the biggest one I saw was 800,000. Sagan sells over 2 million. And, and, and it's after that that you begin to get the real blockbusters. And, and in fact, the, it sort of sets it up so that in 1987-88, when uh, Stephen Hawking writes A Brief History of Time, you know, which just becomes the, completely changes the market and, and so on. But that happens in part because it's been set up over time. It's not that Hawking comes out of nowhere. It's that people had already seen this possibility. Uh, and Hawking becomes a celebrity. Also, you know, as much Sagan was a was a celebrity because of his turtlenecks and his wavy hair. Hawking, because of his his ability to continue to produce despite his disability. As we know now, we didn't realize then, it took a terrible toll on his family and, um, and in many ways his, his personal life became very complicated uh, as a result um, because he was in the celebrity state. And, and so there's a real challenge there. 
the fact that uh, the same producer produced uh, the ascent of man and then produced cosmos uh, and the overall underlying theme is similar so did the work of this producer create uh, this phenomenon of uh, celebrity scientist the idea, the fact that this notion of this broad view that was already coming out of uh, there were other people who were trying to do that as part of a sort of cultural group the vision of making the 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 star that absolutely probably came from Adrian Milne. In fact, that's when I told you that, that Bernowski's widow was quite bitter about the cost of producing the show on the health of her husband, who died very shortly thereafter of uh, heart disease. Um, she actually said something to Sagan's, uh, I forget if at that time he was already married to Andrew Yang, but they were working together. Um, be careful Malone is going to try to make a, a superstar out of him, and it's going to cost you. Um, and so that was certainly part of a recognition at that point that having a star vehicle could really carry it. It's part of the development of celebrity culture in more general. Right? This, this is also a period when other kinds of, of movie star, you know, there'd always been the movie star celebrity. But you start getting other kinds of book authors or um, celebrity chefs or, uh, or the development of a celebrity culture. Um, there's a whole field of celebrity studies. I don't actually know it very well. Um, one of my colleagues, Declan Fahey, who's in Ireland, uh, is, uh, is, is the expert on that. When... Carl Sagan started appearing uh, as a celebrity scientist at uh, various conferences and events. It is well known that uh, there was a certain cross-section of academic community that did not like that kind of representation of science and research. And perhaps this led to some tension as well. But now, these days, universities make a lot of effort in recruiting celebrity scientists. Uh, they try to bring them in as uh, faculty members. Some celebrity scientists uh, do not uh, do much teaching and research. Uh, they are just there to improve the image and uh, the visibility of uh, their universities. Uh, is this a service to science communication or perhaps not? So it depends on, again, you, you now come back to my multidimensional, multi-directional uh, kind of view of science communication. I think there is a real place for celebrity scientists. I think they attract young people into the field. This is exciting. This is dramatic. And the earlier example of uh, James Watson, uh, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, uh, when he wrote his book uh, about the double helix, part of what was exciting there was he was telling this story about you could be young and spend all morning in the lab arguing with your friends and figuring out, and then in the afternoon you got to play tennis, and then in the evening you got to go chase people around at bars. Unfortunately, we subsequently discovered that, again, we learned that Watson's eye for women was... Uh, was was not a healthy one, and to the end, you know, in the end of his career, and with his racist beliefs. So we also discover the complexity of people here. 
But the idea that there was this, you know, if you ask scientists of a certain age, what got you into science? So if you got if you talk to people who became scientists in the 40s and 50s, they will tell you, oh, I read Paul de Kuyt's book, Microbe Hunting. And if you ask people who became scientists in the late 60s, 70s, and into the early 80s, they will, every one of them, no matter what science they're in, I read Watson's Double Helix. And if you ask people who became scientists in the 80s and early 90s, oh, I watched Cosmos as a kid, right? So there's a place for that particular function for the celebrity scientist. Neil deGrasse Tyson does the same thing today um, in, a, in astronomy. But none of those people was really good, maybe Bernowski a little bit, about being critical about the social and ethical issues associated with science. They were, they were promoters, which is fine. That is one of the functions. But it's not the people who were calling for a science holiday in the 1930s saying, wait a second, has society caught up? Or the people saying, you know, we have a biotechnology and nanotechnology. They're wonderful things at the same time. They change who has power in industrial society. Is that the way we want it? Agri uh, artificial intelligence, as we develop that today, uh, you know, it's, it's a great thing, but it's also, we know, has all of these issues of bias built into it and, and so on. And the promoters are not the ones who are asking those questions. So we need a place for other people who are asking those questions. Um, they need to do it in an informed way, it needs to be, you know, it's hard to do, um, but we certainly need other functions as well. My next question is the title of one of your research papers. Was there really a popular science boom? So in the early, late 1970s and early 1980s, there was an explosion of popular science magazines. So there were a bunch of new popular science magazines. There's also Sagan's Cosmos in 1980. There were some other new television shows. In, I think it was 82, Walter Cronkite, who was our lead in the United States, he was, he was called the most trusted man in, in, the, in the country because he was the voice of the, uh, the newsreader on the evening, most popular evening news show. When he retired from his main position, he started a show called Walter Cronkite's Universe. It was a science show. So there was all this stuff that was, that was happening. It's, it's the time when I started in the field. So I graduated college in 1980 and I started working as a science writer. Uh, in 1982, the company that I was working for went bust. And I began to have questions about what is this popular science boom? Everybody says there's this huge demand for popular science. And the product, the series of books we were producing was a great series. They're on the shelf behind me. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and yet somehow, and I, I know we're selling, we're doing the right thing. And somehow it's not enough to pay. What is it? And I didn't know enough about business to know what the business issues were. And so I began to ask, and then a few years later in 1986, 
a bunch of those magazines died within months of each other. And that led me to start having questions about what is, what exactly is this popular science doing? And what I discovered was that a lot of the boom was the science community itself pushing science information out to the public. A, a, a belief that it is, that it is good to get science out there, if only for the recruiting purposes. Sagan was quite explicit that that was one of his goals, was to recruit people into science. Um, but also, uh, the, you, we go in cycles about concerns about science literacy and uh, whether enough people understand science, and it was part of that push we need to get more people to understand. But it wasn't, it was also a reaction against critiques of science that came out of the 1960s and 1970s, where people were asking about the role of science in the Vietnam War and in nuclear weapons and in the environmental problems that we were finally beginning to face up to. Uh, and and so there was this push from the science community, but, there, but most of this popular science boom wasn't a critique of science, wasn't a subtle exploration. It was more, it, it was more, it was polished. Um, and so the, you know, the title is partly a, if there was a boom, then was there a crash? It was really more, you know, also trying to understand what was the basis of, of the boom. We live in the age of information superhighway. We live in the age of uh, digital hyperconnectivity. Audio and video podcasts, interviews, presentations are available on a variety of uh, platforms. How do you see the present state of affairs when it comes to the public engagement of science? I think it's wonderful. It's rich. It's, it's, there's so much wonderful stuff out there. I mean, it, it can sometimes seem as though I'm being critical of popular science because I, I worried about not addressing enough of these social critiques. But the reality is that there's an incredible amount of wonderful stuff out there explaining science, getting people excited, uh, showing how things work, answering people's curiosity. And because of it, all of the tools that the digital world has given us, uh, websites, podcasts like this one, TikTok, I still haven't figured out, um, uh, and, and so on. Uh, there's all kinds of material out there for people. And people can explore their interests and they can, if there's a particular area they want to go, they can go in depth and find rich uh, lectures and explorations and online textbooks and, and so on. And that's great for people who have access to the digital world. Right? I want to put a little asterisk there. Let's remember that's not everybody in the world. You know, huge parts of the world that are being left out of this, um, of this exploration. Um, that's the part I tend to go to, right? But I want to, you know, there is this wonderful exploration. When we say that we live in the age of information, uh, we must acknowledge that we also live in the age of misinformation and in the age of uh, disinformation. Do you think that bad or compromised science communication activities are leading to misinformation and disinformation about science? So I don't think it's limited to, to science. I think we now know how much 
misinformation and disinformation is out there about politics, about health, about um, music, even, you know, how much we're manipulated into all of our purchases. Uh, and, and so I think we have to be careful that we don't say this is just a science problem. Right? This is a, it turns out that when you have a lot more information flowing, you also have much more, much less stability to the information. Uh, I once I once tried to publish a graph it, 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 and it was rejected because I didn't have units on it. Um, but the, the basic idea was that information typically goes up slowly, let's say about a new phenomenon, a new scientific phenomenon. Typically goes up slowly, kind of stable, is stable for a while, and then people lose interest in it, and it goes down. So you have a low, if you think of this as a graph, it's a sort of low hill that extends for a while. When there's, in a world of new information coming very rapidly, let's say COVID, there's a huge spike in information. It goes straight up. And then, as we get better and as we understand more, that spike falls off and it comes down and you eventually get a stable production of information probably at a lower level than what that upper one is. If you can imagine those two graphs, one is a very low, stable hill. The other one is a steep spike that's not stable. It can tip. It can be knocked over. Um, and that's the place that we all... That's, we don't yet know how to deal with that problem. We're still figuring that out. But if we can envision it, then we can see that, you know, if you want to um, take the derivative under those two hip, those two slopes, they're probably about the same, but they're still very different um, amounts of information. They're different shapes of the information. Do you think that when social, cultural, and political polarities exist in a society, uh, science information and science misinformation become entangled? Well, it's always been entangled. So science has always been tied to patronage and to, and to politics. There's a very famous case, Galileo. When Galileo first uh, turned his, his telescope to the skies, uh, he found three moons of Jupiter. The problem was that his patrons were the Medici brothers, and there were four Medici brothers. So it's not that he made something up, but he didn't actually publicize what he found until he found a fourth moon. And then he could dedicate his book to the Medici brothers. Right? So, so, you know, this, is, this has been going on for, for a long time. The idea that, that governments should support science goes back into the 19th century um, uh, easily. In, in the 1990s, when we were developing the superconducting super collider in the United States, it was going to be a huge particle, uh, particle accelerator that was going to be 50 miles. I can no longer remember whether it was diameter or circumference or radius, but either way, it was really big. Um, and, uh, there was a lot of political support from it around the United States, in part because there were different parts of the country that were competing to be the place where it could be located. Once a location was set, it was to be in Texas, uh, a lot of the political support 
for it, for spending all of a huge amount of public money on this, went away. Because suddenly, you know, my representatives here in, I live in New York State, in the Northeast, why should we support something that's, or all the money is going to go to Texas? Um, and then when it started having other kinds of financial and operational difficulties, the, the support for it just collapsed and, and the whole project was killed. So there's always been this interaction of politics and, and, and science, especially big science. What we're seeing right now is in, in things like climate change or, or COVID is a place where a particular belief about science is tied to a particular political position. Um, and there, it's the same kind of challenge we have with other disinformation, right? So we know that the oil companies have been creating ways of, of, of saying that climate change is not real for many years. It turns out that these are the same, literally the same people, the same advertising agents, sometimes the same scientists, who earlier were arguing against tobacco, the, the idea that tobacco causes cancer. And before that, they were often people who were um, promoting atomic weapons, nuclear, nuclear weapons. And there was a political dimension to it. Some of the people in the earliest years, it really starts with the nuclear end, these were people who were sometimes refugees from, Nazi, from the Nazis and uh, or refugees from Eastern Europe, strongly anti-communist, um, with often very good reason. They had, they had experienced the worst of, of the communist uh, system. And this became part of our politics, especially in the United States, but I think in other countries as well, of anti-communism, virulent anti-communism. And because these scientists were that, they became anything that was critical of nuclear weapons was for them critical of anti-communism and, and so they, I mean, ultimately here in the United States, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the person who had led the development of the atomic bomb, was cast out of the security establishment. His security clearances were pulled um, because he was not sufficiently anti-communist. Um, so we this, it's a problem. It's not a problem that we know how to solve. Uh, it's science. Science. I have to be really careful how I say this. Science as a body of knowledge is not political. But science as a social process and science as a set of social institutions are inextricably woven into the political system. They, they we respond to the political process that says we're going to put more money into health than into space exploration. We respond to a political system that says we are going to delegate to the National Academy of Sciences where the astronomy money should be spent. But we're only going to give you this much money for astronomy. Right? Um, we are here in the United States. Some of in COVID, some of our decisions about masking or uh, vaccine requirements 
are tied to the political issue in the United States. One of our um, basic political tensions in the United States is between the right of individual states to control things within their state versus a single federal uh, requirement for all of the states. This is, this is the fundamental tension in the creation of the United States in 1776, right? You know, there's nothing, this is, this is not a new problem. It waxes, it wanes in different things. It happens that over the last few years, there has been a very strong individualist um, political movement. Um, some of us think that that movement may be funded by people who don't have the best interests of the collective at heart, um, but that's a different issue. Um, but these things are going to be intertwined. And so we're not going to like solve the science and politics problem by saying, oh, we really just need to divorce them. We can't. They are inextricably, you know, I am, I work at a university that receives, uh, I think it's about 10 or 15% of its budget from, from public funding. Uh, politics affects the ability of scientists to work here in, uh, in the university. What we have to do is have a richer understanding of that so that we don't have simplistic claims about, oh, just get the politics out of science. That's not going to happen. What are the main challenges uh, for the process of uh, public engagement of science? One of the big challenges for science communication is that there's this history of, of really great information delivery. What we don't have as much skill at or experience at is how do we talk about the uncertainties? How do we talk about not just the uncertainty that science is always changing, although the scientific, our knowledge is changing, that's one uncertainty, but also that there are things we can't know or things where we can put some bounds on what we know, but not, we can't be precise. Uh, and that that is in fact part of the nature of knowledge, is that we can't be, be precise. Uh, that's something we haven't necessarily done a great job of in science communication. I think we have to find ways, you know, with, when you're having a science fair, and you're out on the street with tables, and there's balloons all over the place, and there's kids coming, and they're making green goo, and their parents are, are trying to read the astronomy posters and whatever. That's great. It's wonderful science communication. But it's not getting at uncertainty. It's not getting at the complexities of knowledge production. So I think we need to find ways of getting at that. We know uh, that there have been people left out of science and science communication. And here in the United States, one of our most common, one of our most well-known examples is that in the 1930s, the U.S. Public Health Service, so a government agency, started what they called an experiment, the Tuskegee experiment, in which they denied poor African American men in the South of uh, the United States for treatment for syphilis. And it was justified as a way, well, we have to see what the natural course of the disease is. Well, A, it wasn't a very well 
today we recognize it was not a very well designed science, even by the standards of the day. It was clearly racist in the of who was targeted. And it went on for 40 years. It, it, it just, it didn't stop literally until the late 1960s and early 1970s. It's a horrific, um, uh, part of our history. And it has continuing implications. Because if you are an African American male in the United States, you don't trust the medical system. And there's good reason not to trust the medical system. And therefore, how do we talk about issues of trust? And how do we talk about why, yes, we had problems before, but here's what we're trying to do to solve them. Yes, we still have problems today. What can we do to solve them? So there's a historical dimension to knowledge production that we have to talk about. We know, for example, in other parts of the world, English is the dominant language of science. It's also the dominant language of science communication. Well, in many parts of the, of the world, the only people who know English are the elites, because they're the ones who can um, go to school and, and you know, have time to, to study. Which means that if science communication is all in English, if most of it's in English, we're leaving out huge portions of the world who don't have access to that information. So we have to find ways of, um, of accomplishing all of this in multiple languages, not just the information delivery, but also as we develop these ways of talking about uncertainty and about trust, we have to do that at the same time. So those are some of the things that I think we really need to be doing as we move forward. And uh, what are the main societal challenges that uh, effective science communication can help us to deal with? Oh, there's lots. <laughs> I have a whole. I, I have one slide where I tried to list all of the uh, uh, what are called wicked problems, problems that are interwoven. I went into two columns and then three columns, and I fell off the edge of the slide, and and so on. So we have clearly climate change. On the day that you and I are recording this this podcast, the IPCC has just released another report indicating that there is simply no question. This is un here. There is undeniable evidence that things have gotten really bad already. We are past some of the tipping points. Um, that's a problem, and that involves politics, that involves economics, that involves science. Uh, it involves geography, it involves power relationships around the world. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated problem, but science is part of it. We are also recording this in the middle of a pandemic. We're now, what, 18 months, more than 18 months into this pandemic. Um, and clearly there are science components of that. Uh, which vaccines work, what kinds of mechanisms will can help prevent the spread of the vaccine, developing an understanding of how to treat the vaccine, or how to treat the, the disease. Um, but there's also, again, those power issues. Why is it that even with all of our problems, we're at 50% vaccinated in the United States or something like that? And there are other developed countries that are only at 10 or 15%. And then there are the countries with poor economies and poor connections where very few people at all have to contribute. So there's a power issue there. There's also a, 
we still have people traveling to those countries and people from those countries traveling elsewhere. And so we're going to have continuing wave after wave of how do we talk about, we, we have to find ways to talk about the interactions of these global economic systems and pandemics and treating them and so on. So there are those kinds of issues. We have the exciting areas of science like material science or artificial intelligence where new materials uh, are wonderful things. They are can help us be more energy efficient. They can help us build medical instruments or medical implants that we didn't have before. How do we make sure that those the benefits of those are distributed fairly around uh, around the world? How do we make sure that the people who produce those items are not caught in labor systems where they are exploited or where they're forced to live, you know, deal with toxic substances uh, all the time? How do we deal with the fact that we have to mine these terrible strip mining in, in many countries, destroying the environment for those places in order to get the materials that we need to make these wonderful devices? Right? These are these are complicated problems, and, and there's no simple answer. And science communication can play a role in helping us understand the complexity of the um, artificial intelligence, the issues of, of bias and algorithms, and, and we talked earlier about misinformation and the way that algorithms are contributing to misinformation and to bubbles of people who don't talk to other bubbles of people, and therefore we have more polarization. So we need to understand both those social effects, but also what is it about algorithms that, that it makes them both so wonderful so that when I'm shopping for shoes online, I can get what I want and it shows me the kinds of shoes I want. And at the same time, that now means that ads for shoes follow me around everywhere. Um, that's the simple, relatively non-harmful version of this. The version of this that says, if I had a black face, Facial recognition would not recognize me, or would say that I look like someone else who is a criminal. Um, that's that's a more serious problem, um, and we need to find ways to deal with things. Bruce, uh, we have touched upon various uh, aspects of public engagement of science. Uh, is there anything else that you think uh, that you suggest uh, we should touch upon before we close this discussion? I think the one thing that we've touched on very lightly, but that I'd like to perhaps come back to just as we wrap up, is the importance of trust. Scientists, in order for science information to be helpful and useful in these broader social conversations, the science community and the people who communicate with and for the community need to have need to build trust with other communities. Trust is not something that you can just turn a switch and suddenly it's there. This requires years of effort, and it requires time and resources. And scientists need to be rewarded for the time that they put into that. And so if a scientist chooses to spend part of his or her time working with a community group, not on some big issue, but on you know their particular science or so on. 
that is something that should be valued to the point that it counts like publication. It counts as, if you do this, you are helping the overall science community grow and be more useful in society. So there's, there's two parts of what I just talked about. One is the importance of trust and making that a goal. And the other part is saying, and if we're going to achieve that, then the science community itself, and largely that means the academic community, but also to some extent the industrial and the government uh, science groups as well, need to reward those that kind of work, that long-term trust-building work, in meaningful ways that advance people's careers. Professor Bruce Lewinstein, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue. Thank you and goodbye.